Hey, thanks for joining us today on Uptime Logistics. Of course, it's powered by Cap Logistics, and I'm your host, Doug Draper, with the Denver Transportation Club. And today we have a, a great topic with a very knowledgeable guest, uh, and we're excited to have John Duncanson with us. John, how you doing? Just fine, thanks, Doug. How are you? Good, good, good. So John is the Executive Vice President of Corton Capital, um, and he's involved with the Timber analyst in the Corton Global Timber Fund. So, um, John, what we like to do on our shows is learn a little bit more about our guests. I just spurred out a whole bunch of words and a whole bunch of things related to your business, but obviously you can uh, tell our audience in more detail. So give us a quick snapshot of yourself and, and kind of how the, the business and the Corton Global Fund uh, got started. Okay. Well, thank you, uh... Doug, I'll start just with very briefly on my career. Um, I'm located in Toronto, Canada. I'm actually calling it from my home office, as most people are working out of these days. Um, so I'm surrounded by concrete. Um, we do have some trees in the backyard, but I am a professional forester, just mm -hmm. a different location. Um, I've uh, spent uh, close to 45 years in the forest industry, both working in the industry where I started from. I am a professional forester, but for the last 35 years of my career, I've, I've worked in the uh, investment and finance industry, but all uh, specializing in uh, forest products, timber and, uh, and lumber. When I did work in the uh, forest industry, which was way back when, in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, um, I, I went through the ranks uh, fairly quickly. I started off in lumber sales and uh, worked my way up to becoming vice president lumber sales of what was the largest lumber company in Canada and one of the largest in North America. Mm -hmm. My real claim to fame was back in those days, most lumber was produced by sawmills and sold to wholesalers. We didn't have the, we didn't have the big home centers that we all have now. They were just starting out, and one of the reasons I got promoted to Vice President of Sales was I, I went to a trade show in Atlanta and met with a group of people that were coming from a company called Home Depot, which I had never heard of before. We got to know each other quite well, and they said, why do we have to buy through wholesalers? Why can't we just buy directly from the mills? And I took it back to my boss and almost got fired for even suggesting that we how dare we go around the wholesalers? Um, anyhow, uh, Home Depot, I convinced our credit manager to actually give us a line of credit for Home Depot. Uh, as soon as we established a line of credit, it was a couple million dollars, which was a drop in the bucket for them. Um, they started calling in orders. I placed an order of 100 rail cars in one hour. Uh, that got the attention of uh, the people at, at the sawmills, and they said, hey, who's this guy, Duncanson? We think he should be running the show. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, that's how I started. But uh, over the, in my experience in the, the uh, forest industry, um, uh, led to my get lured into the investment uh, industry, the finance industry. And I've worked as a forest products analyst uh, with two of Canada's largest brokerage firms. And I uh, also did a 10-year stint at the Chase Manhattan Bank, believe it or not. Even though I was based in Toronto, I was reporting to, to uh, New York City. That gave, me a, that gave me a chance when I was working at Chase to basically travel the globe. And uh, we did financing for pulp mills and paper mills and sawmills all over the world. So 
Anyhow, so that's just the, my career. Um, my partner and I started up Corton Global Timber Fund in uh, 2019, so we're not quite two years old yet. But what we recognize is that, that uh, for the average investor, there was really no way to play in the um, invest in the forest industry other than just buying uh, a stock, you know, buying one particular name or two, um, like a wirehouser or a potlatch. Um, so we uh, we realized that there were only there were only two timber uh, exchange traded funds or ETFs as they're known in North America, but both of them were passive. They just basically held stocks. They didn't actively manage it. So we created the Corton Global Timber Fund to uh, to capture that uh, ability to actively sell uh, units in the fund to the public uh, investors on an actively managed basis. We don't buy and hold. We, we actively sell. We can short stocks if we think uh, uh, if, 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 if we feel it's necessary. Um, and uh, needless to say, with the higher commodity prices, it's been a, we, our performance has been ex exceptional. We're up mm -hmm. uh, year over year, we're up over 50%. And that's a pretty attractive return for the average investor. And it's, we only invest in big liquid uh, forest, forestry and lumber companies so that we have the liquidity um, so we can, um, we can, you know, you can buy and sell the fund as if it was just a, a normal security. Yeah. So basically that's the back, my background, uh, um, Doug. Nice. Yeah. Well, with experience is what you told, told us in our audience and, uh, activity, um, it is certainly going crazy right now, which kind of leads us into the topic of the show is what exactly is going on with the lumber shortage, the soaring prices, you know, and, and kind of most recently, kind of the, the market correction that transpired. So, um, yeah, give us, you know, there's three questions in there for you, right? What's yeah. going on? Why the soaring prices? And then we've had a kind of correction in the last, yeah. uh, really last couple of days. So maybe we'll just start there. Okay. Well, let's deal with the first part of your question, Doug. The, um, the answer for the reason why um, we've got a lumber shortage and why we've seen soaring prices over the past nine months, basically, Mm -hmm. um, is just as simple supply and demand. Uh, North America, the, uh, in particular, the U.S. housing uh, market has been on fire. Um, you know, from, if you look back from 96 to 2006, the housing market in, in the United States and in Canada, for that matter, were very similar to the U.S., um, was, was very much overbuilt. Um, in the U.S., we were building upwards of two million start two million houses a year, so we were um, we were outpacing uh, the, tr the 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 trend line, which is roughly about a million and a half starts a year is the trend line. But since 2006, the the, uh, the housing industry in the U.S. in particular has been grossly underbuilt. Um, and annual housing starts have actually lagged that 1.5 million housing trend line. And so, um, and the, you know, some of the lean years, especially during the housing crisis in the 2008, 2009, we were building well below a million um, starts per year in the U.S. So today uh, we estimate, and saying we, it's analysts as well as everybody in the industry, including the home builders, we estimate there's a pent-up demand 
um, from that gap uh, from 2006 of about three, maybe three and a half million starts. So um, you couple that with the fact that now that we're getting back to a trend line, because the latest housing starts are running at a million five, million six, um, you have this backlog of pent up demand as well. So that's on the demand side. On the supply side, what we've seen, and a lot of people don't realize it, and the market really doesn't recognize it quite yet, is that the uh, we've seen literally dozens of sawmills permanently closed um, since the housing, uh, since the financial crisis back in 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen um, the majority of these closures have happened in the two largest lumber producing regions in North America, uh, namely the North, the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. We're talking Oregon and Washington. And in Canada, it's, it's the province of British Columbia, directly north of Washington state. So uh, those we've, we've literally got, uh, I think the last count, there's something like 35 fairly well-sized sawmills that have been permanently closed. Um, so um, that's that's basically the answer to your first part of your question, Dougland. And then if you want to, what was your next, the next part? Was yeah, the, yeah, no no worries. So, you know, I, I want to jump in. You made an interesting point about, you know, the, the closures. Most, you know, uh, Canadians and Americans are like, okay, well, my world was closed for an entire year in 2020. Yeah. I get it that, that uh, sawmills were closed. But I think, you know, what about, you know, the, the climate changes, uh, environmental concerns, because here in Colorado, we've, you know, last probably 10 years, there's been a pine beetle uh, infestation that's just been devastating to the Colorado mountains and things of that nature. So I think it may be counterintuitive to say, hey, closures, yes, there were some closures COVID related, but I think it goes well beyond that. Talk about the environmental and kind of the climate changes that had an impact on, on the, the mill closures. No, that's a very good question, Doug. And the, um, and when I when I refer to closures, these are permanent closures. These aren't temporary. The these mills have been shut. The towns, unfortunately, the the workers have been moved on. Uh, the the equipment, if it had been any good use, has been re you know repurposed to other mills. But the uh, but you're right on the. Um, I'm I'm not a big environmentalist, and I, but I do believe in climate change, and. Um, they, um, those two areas are intertwined and they have been the primary result of uh, these permanent closures. They've all added to um, falling wood demand, wood supply, I should say. You pointed out the pine, mountain pine uh, beetle, um, which devastated a large portion of the forest in northern Colorado. Um, there, there is no there is no wall between Canada and the U.S. It's probably the most open border. But as far as bugs are concerned, they fly. And even if there was a wall or even a big mesh, it wouldn't have kept them out. And that's it moved into the pine forest, uh, lodgepole pine forest, primarily in the mm -hmm. interior part of British Columbia, which is the biggest lumber producing region in Canada. And it started moving up there in the you know the late the late 1990s, and it really took off um, all through the early 2000s. Um, and it you can't you can't kill the beetle. The only thing that kills it is nature itself, and you need sub 40 degree weather, um, whether it's Celsius or Fahrenheit. It's still 40 below. Um, you need that for in you know, very cold winters. 
the problem is that with because of climate change, we've had abnormally warmer winters, and so the the female beetle has actually been able to hibernate safely inside the bark of these pine trees, and come spring when the trees start growing again, the beetles the beetle the mothers come out, they've laid all their eggs, and the infestation has just been horrendous. Every third tree in British Columbia in the interior um, has is, is lodgepole pine, and over 90% are dead. Uh, there was a great rush by the industry to consume all of those trees before the wood got decayed and, and was not, uh, not being able to be used commercially. So we did have a, a spike in lumber production as, as mills hurried to consume all that timber because it's a valuable resource. The beetles run its course, it's all done. Um, and so we're starting to see, we saw, um, we've seen these large number of sawmills that have been closed because of the, uh, because of the uh, uh, lack of timber. So that's why they're not coming back on again because you, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you uh, run a sawmill without timber? In the Pacific Northwest, um, you've had environmental factors, and there's big ones happening right now as we speak with this huge heat wave that's going on in Oregon and in Washington State. We're seeing um, wildfires. We had some really bad ones last year. We had some huge ones in BC two years ago. Mm -hmm. the, the whole province right now in British Columbia is on massive fire alert, as is large portions of Oregon. So we're going to see further destruction of timber, the timber base, because of the wildfires, which can be, getting back to your point, can be directly tied to uh, the climate changes. So. Yeah, yeah it's, it's catastrophic. I know a lot of our listeners are in Colorado, but for those that are not, I mean, it's just... My wife and I love to do cross-country skiing, and, and we've been in forests that were so densely populated that were just amazing opportunities for skiing, and now they're just wide-open spaces. It's just it's absolutely devastating. So I know that the natural and environmental impacts we just spoke about, but going back to, to COVID, you know, uh, and the demand side uh, of, of things and the consumption, you know, the absolute craziness of how people are consuming things in, in, in droves right now. How much of, uh, of that demand is related, uh, you know, just to COVID and, and what I just spoke about as far as the demand? It certainly has an impact, but it is really recent. Uh, has that moved the needle a little bit? Talk about that. Yeah, that's another good, very good uh, question. We're, and as we're, as we're hopefully getting out of COVID with the vaccination levels uh, mm -hmm. increasing, we're finding out more and more what really happened back in that sort of May, June, a year ago period when uh, we didn't even have vaccines. There were no vaccines. Everybody was working on trying to develop one. But what happened on the uh, on the demand side was that uh, a lot of, uh, you know, whether you were in Canada or in the United States or even in Europe, for that matter, um, the stay at home stay at home orders came out and people were stuck at home, um, they had to uh, fix up their basements, they had to build home offices. Um, and so the demand for lumber and other building materials really skyrocketed um, mm -hmm. as a result of COVID. 
um, on this, uh, and um, the home centers uh, that happen in Toronto and Canada, as well as uh, many parts of the states, the home centers, the Home Depots, were actually deemed as essential businesses and remained open. So, um, so it wasn't a, a lack of um, supply from them. It was just the demand that could not, uh, the supply just couldn't keep up with it. And then on the supply side, many of the sawmills, whether it was in the United States or in Canada, um, had COVID outbreaks. Um, and if you had one or two workers on a shift at a sawmill that tested positive for COVID, they'd have to shut the whole shift down. So, so there was a lot on the supply side, there was a lot of uh, COVID related downtime that was taken. So it created an enormous uh, bottleneck. It drove inventories in the field and at the mills down to almost zero. And that's, that's supply demand coming again. And that's why prices that at that time, a year ago, were trading at around $300 a thousand board feet. Now a thousand board feet for your viewers, just picture a forklift load of lumber. Mm -hmm. That's a thousand board feet. So when a forklift is at the building center and you're putting it in the back of your pickup truck, that's $300 worth of lumber. So the prices though have gone from $300 to $1,600. Um, and we'll touch, touch base later on what's yeah. happened to the, uh, the, the meltdown in prices we've seen uh, just recently. So, yeah. but uh, as, we've, as we're finding out now, as people are starting to get back to, uh, Back to normal, we're seeing um, we're seeing um, the do-it-yourself um, businesses sort of dried up a bit, um, and it's largely price-related because the prices just got so high um, that people said, "Okay, I can put off that deck now." Mm -hmm. And we're in the summer period; people are saying, "Okay, we can move. We can we can go to the ball game on Saturday. You don't have to work in the basement of the house. We can, you know." So there's a myriad of reasons people are coming out of basically out of hibernation. But yeah. the boom in the do-it-yourself and home renovation market is not just COVID-related. It's you got to peel back the skin of the onion a bit further, and you'll, you'll see that a lot of the, the do-it-yourself projects have been put off for years and years. I'll get around to fixing up that fence. I'll get around to fixing up the deck. But the bigger renovations, the add-ons to houses um, and the fixing up, the complete remodeling of existing houses has always has, is, has been basically delayed by COVID because you couldn't get contractors into the house. You couldn't get the plumbers, the electricians, and now they're getting back in there. And so I expect to see the um, do-it-yourself and renovation market to really start to be a, a very strong boost going forward here. The, the number one um, indicator I use, Doug, is that you take a look at the average age of the house in the U.S. Um, Canada is very similar, but in the U.S., the medium age of a house is 43 years old. So you've got parts of New England, the houses are over 100 years old, and you've got, uh, but you know, the average is 43 years, and like most things after 43 years, you've got to, you got to fix them up. Um, the, and the other thing um, I'll point out too, is that a lot of the older houses were built 
uh, were built on a smaller base. And people these days like to have a larger house. They, people want to build home theaters. They want to build you know, proper rec rooms and things like that. So a lot of the houses that are older are actually going through substantial expansions. Um, right. It's easier. It's it's a lot cheaper to expand an existing house than to build a brand new one now. Yeah. Um, and then the the other big point, Doug, that's really happening is that the the millennials, so the thirty to thirty five year old cohort, is now moving into what has been the historic uh, first time uh, home buyers. So the outlook, if you read any of the home builder um, reports, um, they're all very positive um, on the household formation and family formation and new house buying. And uh, so we're entering a period where this is going to be a very strong um, demand feature going forward for the next 5 to 10, 15 years. So, um, Interesting. Yeah, and then great. the last the last point. Don't want to go on too long about COVID, but we're now starting to find out, and the statistics are showing it to us now. And again, I'm using the Commerce Department statistics from the uh, the most recent housing starts. Um, the COVID has forced people to uh, stay at home, but we're now finding out in many of the big cities um, that a lot of the employers are now willing to allow their employees to to uh, to work from home so um there's this movement to um by many north americans to relocate to the suburbs mm -hmm. is is has been sort of pent up by i believe and is now been sort of uh pull it up. it's the genie coming out of the bottle basically which was led by covid so people are going to now adopt a more modified work from home schedule. It may not be the full week. It may be it's two or three days. Right. So this is really translated. And it's very noticeable in the statistics. And if you just pull the most recent statistics from the housing, from the U S commerce department, you'll see an interesting thing that the level of single family housing starts, which has traditionally run at 65 to 69%. The other, percentage being multifamily, being condos and apartments. Um, but uh, 70, it's, it's been running so far in 20, 2020, most of late, late 2020 and uh, all through 2021. Um, even though it's a big increase, it's now running at about 72% of all housing starts are single family. That's significant because obviously a single family house as opposed to a concrete apartment or condo unit uses a tremendous amount more lumber. Um, so, so we're, we're seeing this, uh, another phenomenon it's a, and it's a result of getting back to COVID. Uh, so do you think, you know, if, if you were a pessimist, you'd think, okay, everybody's going to go back to working downtown and everybody's going to start commuting again. And I don't think so. I think you're going to see, I know that, the Harvard University has put out a big study on this. It's an interesting read um, just released and they come out with the statistic. They think that only the, as much as a, th a third of the workers that worked in downtown cities um, are going to uh, remain at home. So in other words, 60 or 65% will actually go back to the office. but. So it's a, it's a, that's a significant, uh, significant number.
Yeah. Yeah, you know, when, whenever you break it down to the silos um, and the different factors, it, it makes total sense. You know, we had the environmental factors and, and things that had nothing to do with COVID that we're building. And you have COVID with the shutdowns. And then you have the way that people are engaging and using their homes differently as a yep. reaction to COVID. And they're engaging with their work differently. And, and I think there's plenty of people that were tired of having their kids in the background trying to do their work on a kitchen table. So you have this pent-up yep. demand and, and everything else. So when you lay it out there, it, it, it makes total sense. And we um, do have low interest rates, too. This is yep. the other key thing to look at. That, and, uh, you know, that's so crazy because, you know, as, a, as an analyst, and, and that's your, your profession, I was about literally about to say that, is that money – wouldn't say it's free, but it's about as close to, uh, to free as you can get. So I know that that, you know, it's like, I don't know, we use a perfect storm analogy because that's overused, but what we're talking about uh, is, is trending to that. Sure. So we're, uh, we're talking today with John Duncanson. He's the executive vice president of Corton Capital. Uh, he's a timber analyst uh, within that global fund, and, and we're really getting into the the weeds here in a good way with what's going on with the, uh, you know, with the timber industry. So here's a question I have for you, John, is that the, the price, you know, it's a, it's a commodity and the price shot up and then now it's dropped back down and, and, and talk a little bit about that. Like how, I mean, we talked about why it soared. Why did it come down so quickly? You know, I mean, even in the time that we've been talking and you look at a daily trends, it was total chaos and the price was 1600 board feet. And now it's more down into the, to the 800, why did it drop so quickly, even with all the factors that we just laid out? Um, yeah, that's, it, it took, I was expecting some pullback, but not nearly as, as much. Um, it, but my uh, portfolio manager on the fund and I did say, when we started seeing the prices at 1600, we were forecasting $1,200 prices. When we saw 1600, we're just waiting for the air to sort of a little bit of the air to come out of the balloon because they went to 1600 at the end of May. And as, as you point out, they have come back down. And as of last night, the uh, uh, random lengths, which is the bellwether um, uh, reporter of lumber prices published 780. So they basically in the last four weeks have come off by $800. Like they've halved, uh, have come off by $800. Anyhow, just looking at the reasons why, there are two, two reasons in my opinion. Um, we touched a little bit on this before, but the, the record high prices and the sticker shock, as I call it, turned off many, uh, turned off, uh, didn't really turn off, it, turned, it delayed many of the do-it-yourself projects. Um, and so people that were looking at building an addition to their house saying, you know, it's crazy, the prices are so high, let's, let's wait and see. And so as you get more and more uh, business reports coming out, look at how fast lumber prices have come off. I mean, $800 drop over four weeks is significant. It took right. nine months to go from 300 to 1600 and it took four weeks to go from 1600 back to 800 So number one is it's the do-it-yourselfers have been delayed and turned off. And if you look at how much lumber is consumed and where it goes in the United States, Historically, and and uh, and even up until right now, um, forty percent of all lumber consumed in the U.S. goes into uh, repair and the repair and renovation, the do-it-yourself market. Um, mm -hmm. But repair and renovation, so big big repairs and renovations as well. So forty percent. So basically, if 
you've delayed 40% of your um, demand. Um, but as I've pointed out in my experience in the lumber business is that um, once a, a bottom is felt in the, in the price, um, the do-it-yourself projects will resume and they'll resume probably at a faster pace than, than what we've been seeing over the last uh, 12 to 18 months. Um, and another point that hasn't, I haven't seen anybody reporting on this, uh, other than the, the large home builders that I talk to, um, because we do own, we do have the ability to buy shares in home builders as well too, even though it's not really a timber name, we do, we do have the ability in our fund to, uh, to buy some of the larger home builders and play that. And we've done very well on that. Um, so, but what has happened uh, traditionally the the big home builders um, of um, uh, when they uh, when they traditionally um, purchase uh, wood products and we're talking truckloads and truckloads of lumber plywood oriented strand board which is a substitute for plywood um, they usually buy it in a, a three month pricing regime mm-hmm. so uh, so you imagine a brand new subdivision that a builder is building, you know, 600 houses, he'll, he'll lock up that supply for three months. Um, and it's largely so he knows where his costs are and, and of course, um, and can work out his profitability, can schedule his workers and stuff. Now that COVID's over, we're getting back to more, more normal house construction stuff, but this extreme price volatility we've seen, particularly in lumber and but other building products, doors, windows, you name it. Um, it's not just been the volatile pricing, it's been the volume availability because um, inventories are non-existent, they got drawn down to absolutely zero. So the home builders faced with that, that situation have changed their buying patterns. Whether it's permanent or not, I think it's temporary, but they've gone now to a monthly one. So if you buy a new house in a subdivision, you're going to find all sorts of fine print where if the lumber prices go up, you're, you're on the hook for the cost of the, uh, the, the change in the price. So this is sort of a knee-jerk reaction. Um, I think it's temporary. I think the, uh, as we get back to more normal supply situations, we'll, uh, we'll probably see the builders go back to buying longer, longer term. Um, but just getting back to the first point, the do-it-yourself projects, have have really pushed the big home centers like the home depots of the world basically are saying hey we're not getting the traffic for lumber anymore so we're gonna you know they don't buy inventory they don't sit on inventory uh so they're just in time so if they're not selling truckloads of two by fours on the weekend um they're not they're not replacing them Uh, once the once the do-it-yourselfers come back to the home centers they'll they'll be uh, buying like crazy so anyhow so that's basically what we've what we've seen in the uh the last four weeks yeah interesting you know um with with uptime logistics and the the uh um, transportation focus you know i wanted to say when there is demand right people are going to find what they need in, in other markets um and i know that their trees are grown and there's there's mills and things all all over the world so if if i need more lumber uh, I may look at other parts of the world, right? And so yeah. one of the obvious things is what's going on with uh, increased lumber supply in Europe, right? Hey, yeah. there's a lot of lumber in Europe, but 
the ocean container, the supply chain, the imbalance of equipment could really throw that in, into a whack because, yeah, hey, there's lumber in, in Europe. Let's get it over here. It's not as simple as that anymore. So yeah. talk about the increased lumber supply from Europe and what that's doing okay. for, the, for the equation here. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good observation. And um, the one thing about the lumber industry, just to sort of a side note, is that there's a tremendous amount of um, statistical information. You have to know where to look for it. But it, um, both countries, Canada and the U.S., keep very detailed record on um, imports and exports and stuff um, and of all products. But lumber, it's very easy to track it. Um, and it's and it's very easy to see where your where supply is coming from. We know how much lumber goes into the U.S. and how much the, the U.S. buys from Europe. And you're correct. Europe is a is a big uh, forested group. If you put all the countries together, um, and it's not just the the Swedens and the Finlands up in the northern. Um, you know, you got extensive forests all through Germany and France too. And so, and you know, they build houses a little bit differently than uh, we do in North America. It's probably more brick and mortar, but the lumber, uh, the sawmill industry in, um, in the housing industry in Europe is, um, is very healthy, um, very strong, and, uh, and it's, it's um, almost similar to what has happened in North America, COVID-related. Mm -hmm. um, they probably don't have as they don't have nearly as much do-it-yourself business. Um, you don't have the massive home centers like they're not big Home Depots over there. They have the equivalent of Home Depots. But anyhow, just getting back to the your question, um, I looked at uh, lumber shipments in the U.S. Um, from Europe um, are reaching sort of all-time highs. Um, uh, we're at uh, the current numbers, it's about 4% of total U.S. lumber consumption is, um, is uh, supplied by Europe, um, up from historically around 2%. So it's relatively a small percentage, but it's still, it's still a, a fair amount of, of, of wood. And with the, with the $1,600 lumber prices, it was a very attractive market. But what's happened now with the fall off in prices we're going to start to see, and with the continuing strong domestic markets in some of your big European countries, you're already st starting to see the sawmills in Europe turn the tap and they're saying, okay, we're not shipping any more into the Boston area. We're going to, you know, we're going to Frankfurt again. Um, so, um, and, you know, uh, on the logistics side, you know, shipping lumber from a southern U.S. sawmill to a Home Depot in, in Atlanta is a lot, a lot less complicated. You call up the trucker and you truck it. Um, yeah. You're shipping from uh, Central Europe into the northeastern seaboard of the U.S. You got to truck it to the port. You got to load it in containers. You got to get the containers on the ship, and you've got to unload the containers, reload the truck. So. Uh, logistics do not play very well for for the Europeans. So $1,600 lumber prices, yeah, let, let's sell everything we can make into into Boston. $800, forget it. We lose our shirt. So um, so there is a bit of a, um, that, that'll tighten the supply up, I think, as we uh, 
as we go forward. But the one point that we kind of skipped over here, Doug, is that the new sawmill capacity, I don't know if you were going to ask about that or not, but if you go back over many cycles, which I've lived through, uh, when you get these tight uh, supply-demand periods, the number one knee-jerk reaction is, okay, let's go out and build another sawmill. Let's build sawmills to meet the demand. But as we touched on, we got you cannot make lumber if you don't have the tree. And all the environmental and all the uh, climate change-related permanent closures of sawmills um, and the shrinking timber base, we're not running out of trees. We're just running out of commercial forests that can support um, the construction of new sawmills. Um, I've got a list of the new expansion sawmills that have um, been announced with these higher prices, and it's it's a drop in the bucket compared to what we normally have seen, and it's largely related on the fact that we have a, a reduction in uh, in the in the timber base, particularly in British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest. There's still ample timber in the U.S. South, but the problem that the industry in the U.S. South, um, even though the trees grow faster in the U.S. South, is that they're running into, uh, like a lot of industries, they're running into labor shortages. Um, It's not COVID related. This is like they really don't have the skilled workforce to to work in a sawmill. A modern sawmill is not like you picture a, you know, a buzz, a big circular saw cutting logs into boards right um it's all highly automated um most of the men that work or women that work in a sawmill don't even get out of the air air conditioned air conditioned control room where they're pushing buttons Um, everything is done uh, electronically so you need a very technically skilled um, uh, workforce the other big thing that People don't realize, um, especially particularly when you're following it in the stock market. The stock market doesn't um, follow these small in the weeds things, but I do. And one thing that has happened with the uh, overbuilt uh, overbuilt housing that we would identified from '96 to 2006, that 10 year period is that when it was overbuilt and, and resulted in a lot, lot of closures, some of them temporary closures of sawmills, the industry that makes sawmill equipment went through a major downsizing. Mm-hmm. We only have two companies left, believe it or not, in North America. If you wanted to, if you, if you had a, you know, $250 million, which costs, which is the rough cost of building a brand new world-class sawmill, um, your biggest problem would be finding out who am I going to, how am I going to build it? Mm-hmm. You just can't call up anybody and say, do it. So I've checked with the largest sawmill uh, manufacturing, equipment manufacturing group, which is based in British Columbia in, in Canada. Uh, they have built 75% of the new sawmills over the last 10 years. And these have been retrofits, modernization, but uh, greenfield mills where you're actually taking a field and pulling a brand new mill from scratch. Um, their, their dance cart is fully booked. <laughs> They're building three mills right now. They've just signed another one for uh, in the state of Louisiana, but they're building two in, Miss, in Mississippi. They don't have the skilled technicians. They got steel problems, steel supply problems. Um, so what should be a normal case of 
building new capacity to meet the, the demand um, needs is just not going to happen. This will happen over time, but it takes it takes 18 to 24 months to build a brand new sawmill. So by the time these new mills that are being built as we speak, they won't be putting lumber onto the market till 2023, 2024. Wow. So um, we are getting into another perfect storm here. So, yeah. um, and if you get the Europe, you know, the Europeans uh, pulling back, uh, even though it's a small number, it's, um, it's, uh, I think supply and demand is going to get very tight again here in a short, short while. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, the great thing about um, the logistics and supply chain industry, at least nerds like myself, you know, everything is so intertwined, right? Because the yeah. average consumers like just make more two by fours, yeah. right? And, and so simple. sitting there looking in your backyard, you know, um, saying, why don't they just make more? It's not as simple as that. And you're right. You can't just pop up uh, a safe, effective, efficient sawmill uh, overnight. You yeah. know, the other thing that um, we spoke about that's a good indicator uh, before the show was um, kind of about the, the relationship between rail, rail car loading. And I know there's a, there's a great slide. That, that's, it, it's not a complicated discussion, but this is a, a great visual that we can see that kind of walks sure. us through how rail car loadings uh, impact kind of the supply and demand. So um, I don't know. Why don't you walk us through that slide, sure. if you don't mind. That'd be a good. Uh, okay. This is a, this is a um, leading indicator I've been using for, for years, and I don't think any other analyst looks at it. So I'd be interested to see if anybody copies me on this. But yeah, um, I was about to say you're giving away your secret sauce. Yeah, here. be careful. No, I use this. I use this in presentations to potential investors in our fund. Um, so the CNR, which is the Canadian National Railway, which is uh, the largest railway in Canada, one of the largest in North America, and when they get the Kansas City um, acquisition done, if it's allowed by the politicians. Uh, they will be the largest uh, uh, rail uh, rail line and rail car uh, rail line in, in North America. Uh, most of your sawmills in British Columbia, um, which um, which is Canada's largest uh, lumber producing province, um, are connected by rail. You don't truck lumber from northern BC to Dallas, Texas. It goes by rail. So CNR publishes on a monthly basis. You just go to their investor page, just click on that and you get to you get the rail car metrics. So the the dash line on this chart is actually I've I've combined them, I've put it to monthly. I go back to 2016. I could go back even further, but um, you can see the up ups and downs. Uh, uh, some of it's seasonal, um, you know, you get the winter winter delays, um, frost loads, snow, you name it. Mm -hmm. So there's a seasonality on it, but you can see that's what the dashed line is. I've put a trend line in there and that really speaks highly, uh, importantly, or illustrates the, the amount of sawmill closures there have been, particularly in BC because of the, the beetle kill. So you can see it's dropped down to that we're monthly trend line is now about uh, close to, you know, 12, uh, no, 10,500 10, rail cars of lumber um, per month that are coming primarily out of uh, Western Canada. Um, that's down from 
that's down almost two million cars uh, per month since uh, 2016. That really reflects the the sawmill closures. There hasn't there's no lumber. There's no no product to load on the cars. But what I've done in this chart is I've plotted that the rail car loadings to the uh, lumber price, and I've taken random lengths, their lumber composite price, which is published uh, twice a week. So again, I've taken that on a monthly basis to compare month to month. And it, um, it's an interesting correlation, especially if you get into what uh, the, the last several, last few years. Um, and this is one I used to, to, to indicate, it's a pretty good leading indicator when I think lumber prices are gonna bottom. Uh, it doesn't call the peaks that well, but it does definitely does historically call the bottom. And prices right now, as I spoke before, are currently uh, $780. And that's the price for Western spruce pine fir. That's the one you see that's traded on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange in the lumber futures. So that's the that's sort of the bellwether uh, species and uh, price. And so we talk $1,600, I'm talking about western spruce pine fir. So we're down to 780 as of last night. And you can see it going to the chart, uh, whenever the rail cars bottom out, which I, they did, they have appeared to do so as of last week, um, and have tended back up again, that um, there's a delay in there because um, the car loadings are the physical loading at the mill, and it still takes three to four weeks to, or a month and a half in some places to get that lumber into the marketplace in the United States, where, depending where it's going. But it's usually a pretty good indicator. That's where I think uh, lumber prices will bottom out. So we'll see if this chart works, because if I if we revisit this a month from now, I bet you we, uh, we see lumber prices back uh, probably over $900. That's my guess. Um, and then when you just getting back to the bottoming out of prices, um, We've touched on a lot of areas, but you've got the Europeans turning off the tap. You people are realizing, hey, the new capacity is not coming on. You're going to see currently right now we're seeing wildfires. Um, and I can tell you the provinces and the states like Oregon, Washington and British Columbia, when they get these really hot, dry periods like we're going through right now, they shut the woods down. And so all of a sudden, you're squeezing the timber supply that goes to the sawmill. So what are the sawmills going to do? You're going to see announcements coming out in the next couple of days, weeks. We're shutting the sawmill down. So you can't, as I said before, you can't make lumber if you don't have the timber. These will be temporary shutdowns, but right. that will really tighten the supply again. And, uh, and then as soon as people realize the guy that's wanting to build the deck the backyard as soon as he realizes oh no this guy duncanson says that prices are going as, going as low as they can right now i better start looking around for lumber because i'm going to need a project to do in the fall and that's the other thing that really is important to look at we're the building season is almost not even half over yet mm -hmm. um so it's a uh, very very interesting industry to follow yeah yeah it's a great uh great visual there so we always like to, to end the show and, you know, um, what to expect in the future. We talked about how we kind of got here, and it's a lot more than COVID. We talked about what's happening right here and now in the moment and the volatility, you know, that happens even in four weeks that we've seen. 
So I'm going to put you on the spot with this one, John, and say what's going to happen two, three, four years out, right? So you put your, put your uh, thinking cap on and, and tell us what to expect five years from now. What, what's going to happen? Well, I look at, uh, when I look at the supply side, um, we've touched on the Pacific Northwest and Western Canada, um, you know, Alberta and British Columbia in particular. We've looked at, I look at supply, lumber supply coming on in the U.S. South. So continue to build sawmills in the U.S. South. It's just it's not as fast as the market would like. Mm-hmm. One, one region um, that has, that has, ample timber to build additional sawmill capacity, but there's absolutely nothing being done right now, is in Eastern Canada. We have vast forests north of where I am in Toronto, in the province of Ontario, and the province of Quebec, just to the east of us. We have vast forests. Um, Now the trees are smaller, um, so you're not making wide width lumber, but you can make all the two by fours and two by sixes you want. Traditionally, the forest industry in Eastern Canada has been pulp and paper driven. So the trees, whole trees has got chipped up to make newsprint and make pulp mm-hmm. and pulp and paper products. So the, but the, the biggest problem, the sawmill industry and an and investment in saw, new sawmill capacity in Eastern Canada has been held up, uh, unfortunately, with our, uh, our two countries with the ongoing uh, lumber trade dispute. Um, the, um, believe it or not, there's a duty on Canadian lumber imports. Um, currently it's 9%, um, but it's, uh, the Commerce Department has done their next administrative adjustment and they're going to push the duties up to 12, uh, up to as high as 20% come December. Um, the home builders in the U.S., which is extremely large powerful lobby group is being very active with congress right now and saying hey look at this tax on canadian lumber we need it so answer your question on on supply going out over the next couple of years we got to get rid of this trade area they got to get rid of the duties the country the two countries have to sit down and work out another software lumber agreement whether it's quotas or price triggers We've tried them all in the past over the last 25, 30 years, but um, um, none of this was aided by the Trump administration. I, I firmly believe the Biden administration is going to have a lot more, will put a lot more attention to, to, the, uh, to this issue and will we'll work with Canada and try to hammer out a deal. That will, uh, that, if we do get a soft lumber agreement, you will see new capacity, sawmill capacity built in eastern Canada. There won't be there won't be hundreds of sawmills. It might be two or three in Quebec, two or three in Ontario, but that will help. Um, the, the other thing that's going to push the Biden administration is as soon as he's able to successfully get his your infrastructure spending program through. This is very key. Um, even though you're going to be rebuilding bridges and roads and and uh, infrastructure, you still will need a lot of lumber. And so, and it's lumber that's going to be taxed. If it comes from Canada, it's going to be taxed. If it's coming out of the states, it won't be taxed, obviously. So that's that's um, that's that's on the supply side. 
-hmm. So those are all very positive. Um, and then the other thing that's uh, the other area on the demand side, um, even though we, I think it's going to be very tight supply going over the next three, four, five years, is that we have new end markets that are emerging um, in the lumber and in the building industry that are taking the, they're moving at a great rapid clip. And I'm referring to the mass timber construction business, which mm -hmm. didn't exist in North America, you know, a decade ago. It's huge in Europe. Um, and what I'm talking about is actually having the building codes are now changing. So in, in most parts of North America, um, traditionally you could not get a building permit to build a house of wood over three stories tall. Um, that has all changed with the advent of mass timber. So just mass timber, if you just picture two by fours and two by sixes glued perpendicular to each other into large billets in a separate factory, and then they're computerized, cut up into beams, like we're talking not two by fours, but we're talking now, you know, uh, 10 by 10 squares or eight by 10 inch squares. Um, structurally, it's as strong as steel, um, but it has some huge benefits in the fact that um, it's, uh, it's a wide ranging list of benefits, but the key benefits are it's cheaper to, uh, to build with mass timber versus steel and steel and concrete. Mm -hmm. um, the production of mass timber, you're buying lumber. Lumber is a very green product because you're capturing the carbon that's in the, tr in the tree. So as long as you don't burn that wood, the carbon remains in the timber. So, and in the production of lumber at a sawmill, if anybody's been through a sawmill, it's a healthy place to live. I mean, apart from sawdust, which they don't have to worry about because you've got good cleaning systems now. It's a it's a very clean, fresh smell. There is no carbon release in the manufacture of lumber. Right. You can't say that about concrete or steel, which those industries emit huge amounts of greenhouse gases. So, so the environmental part of um, mass timber is uh, is significant. And architects and leading companies that are big on environmental issues are are bending over backwards to um, to use mass timber construction. One perfect example is Walmart is rebuilding their Bennettville, Arkansas headquarters, their, he their head campus, as they call it. They're completely rebuilding it. It's going to be towers that are going to be anywhere between 10 and 20 stories high. And it's all going to be made out of timber. So, um, so that's that's going to be interesting to see where they get their uh, where they get their uh, material from, yeah. and then not to not to belabor the point, but uh, we have a very good example of the lifespan of concrete and um, and steel in uh, in condo and in apartment construction with the example unfortunate example that's happening right now before eyes in in Florida. Anywhere where it's turning out now, anywhere where concrete buildings are, concrete and steel buildings are exposed to salt and salt water, this, they're going to find that as the, the cause of this collapse of this uh, condo in Florida. Um, 
this is going to draw the attention of uh, developers and contractors to perhaps say, hey, what's it going to cost to build a, a, a new condo, 20-story condo using wood? So we've got a really interesting development happening here. So. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the demand is what I hear you say is the demand's not going away. There's uh, between the infrastructure bill and the carbon neutral um, uh, uh, building options um, and, uh, and sprinkle in some political, uh, you know, um, uh, tariffs. Uh, you ain't seen nothing yet, I guess, would nope. be the message to our, to our audience. So, John, I can't thank you enough. We've had a, a tremendous mm. conversation. Your knowledge base is, is phenomenal. Um, again, John Duncanson, he's the executive vice president of Corton Capital, uh, the timber analyst for the Corton Global Timber Fund. Uh, I can't thank you enough, John. You've been uh, very generous with your time, very, very generous with your knowledge, and, and I know our audience well, appreciated thank, it. Thank you, Doug. And we do, um, yeah. we do publish, uh, I do write a lot of articles, and uh, and we publish it on our website, which is Corton, C-O-R-T-O-N, capital, Inc., I-N-C, all one word, dot C-A, not dot com, dot, mm. dot Canada, dot C-A. Gotcha. Yeah, hopefully our guests will go there to, to answer questions and get in touch with you as needed. So thanks again. Well, thank and, you again. Of course. And I'd like to thank uh, our audience for joining us today on Uptime Logistics. It's powered by Cap Logistics. You can find more information about the show in the description below. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. And please visit caplogistics.com. All right, guys, thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time on Uptime Logistics.